0: The second half of Philippians 1 is a commentary on joyfulness. There are, in this section, four essentials for a joyful existence. Last time, we addressed essential number one. Paul had a divine perspective on his circumstances. Paul was able to see things as God sees them. And that is extremely helpful. Essential number two this morning, the second essential. Paul focused on what really mattered and what really matters is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul focused on what really matters and what mattered to him and what should matter to us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul is at Rome. He's in a house, a secured house. He is chained 24-7 to a praetorian guard. These guards would rotate each four hours. Um, and he was chained to them. He had some freedom inside the house, but he had to remain in the house. He would share Jesus with these guards, and a number of those guards uh, received Christ. And then because these guards also would have rotations in and out of Caesar's household, the palace, the uh, palace, they would share the gospel themselves, and members of Caesar's household were becoming Christians. And that started a chain reaction of conversions. It all started inside that house where he was under. Arrest. So people started hearing about all these conversions of these praetorian guards that were happening inside that house as a result of Paul's witnessing, and that caused them to become more confident and more bolder to share Jesus and preach the gospel on the outside. So more and more people are preaching the gospel, and that is a good thing. Notice though, verse fifteen. Philippians one verse fifteen. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. In verse 15, Paul divided those that were preaching Christ into two basic categories. Two categories of those that did preach Christ, the gospel. And then in verses 16 and 17, he comments on those groups in more detail. Group one, notice, were those individuals who preached the gospel but did it for all the wrong reasons. These people did share Jesus, did preach the gospel, but did it from all the wrong reasons. That group consisted of his detractors. Detractors. Group two were those of individuals who preached the gospel but did it for all the right reasons. These people had the right Uh, Reasons and motivation and intent for preaching the gospel. That group consisted of his supporters. So there are two groups. Now verse 17, notice. Paul said, but the latter, the latter, um, meaning the second group, uh, he mentioned in verse 15, the latter, the good ones, Preached out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. So this second group of people he mentioned from verse 15 that preached positioned themselves in Paul's corner. These people encouraged Paul. Those people acted as his, as his true friends and supporters. But this morning, because those people had it together, those are the good guys, we're, we're not going to mention them from this moment on so much. But we're going to focus instead on the first group, not the second group, The first group. Group one is considered the problematic group. But uh, please notice something. Those in group one still preached the gospel. Those preachers weren't heretics. Those men weren't Judaizers or Gnostics. None of them preached a false gospel. Uh, What these men said was Biblical. The message was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Actually, if you'll notice, the message from both groups is the same. The same message, the gospel of Jesus. The difference is in the messenger. That's the difference between these two groups. The messengers in group one had the wrong reasons to preach the gospel. The messengers in group two had the right reasons. So, group one had some serious problems, and some of those problems are mentioned in this passage. Notice. These people were envious, envious. Verse 15, for some indeed preach Christ even from envy. Now we mentioned enviousness in some detail in a recent sermon, so I'm not going to go back there. But being envious is the same as wanting what someone else has that we don't have and wish we did have. Now these men were envious of Paul's ministerial success and that shouldn't be a surprise because that is an all too common human reaction to someone else's success. So some of these ancient Christians were envious of Paul's unique giftedness and his unusual success. He had experienced as an evangelist, a church planter, a theologian and an author of scripture. Remember he authored 13 of the New Testament books. So that was a problem, this enviousness. Second, notice these people were contentious, contentious. Verse 15 continued, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. This word strife in the original language means contention. This word strife means disagreeing, disputing, quarreling, being contentious and critical. And that's what happened at Philippi. The people that were being envious pity, pitted themselves against Paul and focused their energies on discrediting Paul. Christians from this first group were constantly critical of Paul. Some of them actually blamed him for his unfortunate circumstances and argued that it was his own fault that he was imprisoned. Remember, he is incarcerated. He's chained to guards. We would phrase this as his detractors Kicked him while he was down. Notice number three. These people had selfish ambition. Selfish ambitions. Verse 16 describes more of these wrong motives these people had. The former, meaning the first group who preached out of enviousness and contention, the former preached Christ from selfish ambition and not sincerely. This message from these detractors was the right message. But their motive was wrong. Some preach Christ from selfish ambition. The Greek word translated as selfish ambition originally meant to work for a wage. That was a good thing. Most of us either now work for a wage or we have worked for a wage if we're retired. That was a good thing. But over time, that word became not so good because it came to be applied in a negative sense toward those people that tried to benefit themselves irregardless of how it affected others. It was used of people that promoted themselves in the course of running for public office, meaning it was used to describe some politicians. It was used of ruthless, ambitious individuals that sought to elevate themselves no matter who got hurt in the process. These detractors tried to cut into Paul's popularity. Some discredited Paul as an apostle in order to disillusion some of his fan base. Some of them wanted to benefit from his misfortune and hoped that their success at evangelism might cause him to feel inferior to them. But none of that happened, people. None of that happened. The reason that didn't happen is because Paul was a better man than that. Again, notice the next characteristic. These people had a desire to hurt Paul. These people are hurtful. Wanting to bring harm to Paul. Verse 16 continues. The former, group one, preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add, add affliction to my chains. So Paul's detractors wanted to pile on to Paul. Wanted to cause him additional emotional stress and aggravate his difficult situation in prison. So these men attacked his person, his credibility, his faithfulness to God, his character, because they knew that those accusations would be hurtful to Paul. And that was the objective. Paul didn't tell these Philippians, and remember this is a letter addressed to the ancient church of Philippi, he didn't tell this congregation about those detractors in order to extract sympathy from them, But he did it to warn them that it could also happen to them. And it does still happen. This group, first group, constituted Paul's critics. Understand something, no matter who we are, if we are determined to serve Jesus Christ, then we are going to be criticized. There are no exceptions. If we are determined to serve Christ, we are going to be criticized. The question is not, what are you going to do if you are criticized? The question is, what are you going to do when you are criticized? Criticism is part of the Christian territory. Because I am a pastor, I have a visible position, I am often the subject of criticism. Uh, And I deserve some of it. I do. I know that. And I'm grateful for some of it. Uh, but it's an occupational hazard. It just happens. Criticism can be helpful if we react to it as we should. Because of that, I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I'm going to inject at this juncture a large, gigantic parenthesis into the sermon. I'm going to do something very practical and discuss Criticism. That's what we're going to address, <coughs> criticism. And then finish Essentials 3 and 4 after Independence Day and then resume Daniel. I'm going to mention six basic steps on how to handle personal criticism. This is how we address personal criticism, criticism addressed to us. Step one, differentiate between constructive criticism and destructive criticism. Note there is a difference between constructive criticism and destructive criticism. Remember, criticism as a concept is not necessarily a bad thing. Actually, criticism in some form is essential to someone's success. I have a brother, I have three brothers, but I have a brother that's in a cross-country skiing. He lives west of uh, Truckee, somewhere over there. Um, I don't know where, somewhere off 80, I don't know. I've never actually been to his home. He always comes here. I don't know why. Uh, but he's there because he's close to the foothills and the mountains and he can go skiing. And he's in a cross-country skiing. And some time ago, he spent three days in Bend, Oregon, receiving instruction from a world-class or world champion, world champion cross-country skier. And three days. I said, so you were there all that time on skis going up and down the mountains with that guy? He said, yes. I said, why did you do that? He said, well, my technique is off in some areas, and I wanted to know which areas needed to be corrected. I said, so in essence, you paid this man serious money to criticize you. He said, yes. He said, because practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes permanent. And if I continue practicing using bad technique... I'm going to have some permanent bad habits and I'm going to limit my potential as a cross-country skier. I needed someone who's extremely knowledgeable in the sport to be able to critique me, analyze my form and technique, and tell me where I'm wrong. So some expensive criticism helped him to become a, a better skier. Notice Proverbs 17, verse 10. Solomon said, Rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. Solomon said we have to actually hit a fool a hundred times before he gets the message. I might add he might not get it then. But an intelligent person, a wise person can learn something from just one word of criticism. Especially if that criticism is the right form of criticism. Criticism falls into two categories constructive and destructive constructive criticism and destructive criticism someone said okay I get it constructive criticism is when I criticize you and destructive criticism is when you criticize me no that's not it the basic difference between the categories is in the intention behind the criticism the intention and the motive behind the criticism is what makes the difference if the intention is to help us, it's constructive in nature. If the intention, even though it's subconscious, if the intention and motive behind the criticism is to hurt us, to bring us harm, then it's destructive criticism. Constructive criticism is helpful, beneficial. Deconstructive criticism is hurtful and harmful. and That's the difference. The intention is the difference, and we need to differentiate between the categories because we should accept constructive criticism we should and after evaluation of the criticism we should categorically reject destructive criticism the big question is how do we determine the difference how do we distinguish between these categories of criticism it is helpful to ask ourselves three important questions so these are sub points question one who gave the criticism question one who is the critic if someone mentions second hand criticism about me my first reaction is and who said that? who told you that? where did you hear that? it is important that we identify the source of the criticism because if a critic wants to remain anonymous and not reveal his identity conceal his name then his criticism more often than not is not as credible I mean, if you care about someone and your intent is to help them, then you don't mind that they know who you are and your criticism. But there are other individuals that are identifiable, they're not anonymous, that we shouldn't accept criticism from. And the reason is these people tend to be not so good intentioned in their criticism. There are some questions we need to ask about the critic. So these are sub, sub points. One, do we have respect for this person? Do we have respect for them? There are individuals in this church I have tremendous respect for. There are numbers of individuals that I have high, high respect for. Some of the finest Christians I have ever met and served beside. And I have so much respect for some congregants. If one of those sat me down and said, Pastor, uh, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but you're ugly and your mother dresses you funny. If he told me that, I would probably seriously look into it. Because I respect that person. Daner tells me that all the time. and I just ignore it. I respect that person, so I'm going to value his criticism. If I don't respect someone, then their criticism is is not as credible to me. I tell people, consider the source. Consider the source. Because I see people sometimes devastated by criticism that is obviously invalid. But they're not thinking. They're not considering the source of that criticism. I need to add, though, this is so important. Don't just discount criticism. I don't just offhand disregard what a person has said to me about me. I do give it some attention. Why do I do that? I've said it so often, because even a broken clock is, has the correct time twice a day. It might be one of those times. In Numbers chapter 22, if God was able to use a donkey, a donkey to speak to the prophet Balaam and give him some constructive criticism, then who knows who it is that God might use to speak to me? I could expand more on that comparison to a donkey, but I, I will restrain myself. The point is, all criticism, all criticism does get some attention from me, but not as much as if I have high respect for that person. I listen more carefully. Second question, does this person have a habit of criticizing? Meaning, is this a, an habitual criticizer? Some people are hypercritical hypercritical it doesn't matter what we do doesn't matter some people are going to find fault some people are going to be critical of us but there are also some people that almost never criticize anything or anyone almost never and if someone that is not normally critical does say something that is critical about us then we better listen because criticism is not habitual to them so it must be legit. Listen to them. Third question Is this person a contributor or just a critic? Is this person a contributor or just a critic? Monday morning coaches and armchair quarterbacks are common in the church. People that never get into the game themselves, but love to tell us that do how the game should be played. People that don't bring anyone to Jesus themselves, but love to tell those who do just how evangelism should happen these people are critics that never contribute to the solution of the problem that their criticism reveals and that's frustrating the late evangelist D.L. Moody said this to one of his critics he listened to the criticism he was patient he was kind and then he responded and said I like how I'm doing it better than how you're not doing it does it make sense it doesn't mean someone has to be doing the exact same thing I'm doing. I mean, you don't have to be a preacher in order to offer me constructive criticism about my preaching. I mean, if you feel that an hour and a half sermons are too long, that's okay, you can tell me. Tell me they are. That's, that's an exaggeration. That's a hyperbole. You know what hyperbole is? Okay. I don't preach an hour and a half. Longest sermon I've ever preached to date, one hour and 18 minutes. All right, that's, that's it. Uh, but but you don't have to be a preacher to tell me something that might help me in my preaching. It's not necessarily that this person do exactly what I do, but it is important for me you to know this person is on the same team as I'm on. This person, we, we're in this together. It's apparent. Because otherwise, if this person isn't, then this person is just a critic and not a contributor, a contributor to who I am and to what I do. Someone said this, and this is profound, those who row the boat, usually don't have time to rock it. The church has had enough critics. We need more contributors. So who is the critic? Where is the criticism coming from? It is important to ask these questions to help determine the legitimacy of the source. Another question to consider. How is this criticism given? How is the criticism given? Is this criticism coming from someone that is judgmental? Is this critic quick to assume things and anxious to make accusations? Or does this critic ask sincere questions, wanting to gather information and the facts first and doesn't assume anything? Is the criticism coming from someone that gives us the benefit of the doubt? just how is this criticism given is this criticism being shared in a public arena or is it shared on a more individualized personalized basis and it should be the principle is this and I've seen this principle violated I have violated this principle earlier early on in my uh, pastorate the principle is to praise and commend in public and to criticize in private you don't criticize someone in front of others That's counterproductive, that's hurtful, that's harmful, that is not constructive. If someone sets up a time and place to meet with me, to get together in private, and right up front, this person, the first words out of this person's mouth is his assurance of our friendship and his care and love for me. And he communicates a sincere willingness to help me in finding a solution to the problem that his criticism is going to reveal. Then that criticism is most often... 99.99% of the time most often constructive in nature and helpful because it was communicated to me in the right manner. Another question. Why is this criticism given? Why? Why is this necessary? Is this person being critical out of personal hurt? If so, it tends to invalidate the criticism. We've all heard this phrase. Hurt people, hurt people. That's that happens often. Hurt people hurt people, and that means people who have been hurt themselves often end up hurting someone else. There were men in the first service, there were men in this service who are part of law enforcement. We had two correctional officers in the first service um, who basically every day worked with bad people. Uh, there's a sizable percentage of men and women in prison who were psychologically, physically, emotionally, and sexually abused as children. And who then, as adolescents and adults, have committed violent crimes. That's the reason they are there. And they did that as a means of fighting back against the injustices against them. If someone approaches us and starts venting all sorts of unfair and vicious criticism against us, it could be... Could be. We aren't the real problem at all. It could be this person is hurting. Hurting from a rejection. Hurting from a financial collapse. Hurting from an abusive marriage. All sorts of reasons this person could be hurting. And it might be this person is just ventilating and reacting from all the hurt that they feel on the inside. Consider the question. Why is the criticism being given? If it is out of someone's personal hurt then the criticism isn't constructive. It's invalid, actually. Someone is just lashing out and fighting back, and we're just an available and accessible target. We aren't the actual problem. So the answer to these questions will help us determine if the criticism is constructive, if it is helpful to us, beneficial, and if it is accepted. Accept it. I have had some very difficult things said to me that were very hard to hear. Very hard to hear. But I analyzed them, I evaluated them, I prayed about them, and I came to the conclusion that that critic was right. And I had to smash my pride, I had to offer apologies to numerous people. Accept it. If it's constructive, accept it. Let God use it because I'm convinced if our heart isn't open to criticism, then our heart isn't open to God. Step two, don't take ourselves too seriously. Don't take ourselves too seriously. This cancel culture we find ourselves in is so hypersensitive, it's literally nauseating. There's an actress and recording artist, Demi Lovato, Lovato. I don't know anything about her other than I know that on the political scale she is an avowed leftist. She just announced she is non-binary and now uses the pronouns they and them in reference to herself. So she is very confused, very confused. Earlier this spring, she was triggered, meaning she was offended, in a yogurt shop. And I'm certain we all understand how offensive yogurt shops are. I mean, they, they're part of the root problem in this nation, really. They're horrible places. Don't ever go there. She said, I'm quoting, Finding it extremely hard to order frozen yogurt from the Big Chill when you have to walk past tons of sugar free cookies and other diet foods before you get to the counter so apparently sugar free foods and diet foods are offensive to her (laughs) just keep walking it's not a deal society is too uptight we need to lighten up people she's the reason someone said most people take themselves too seriously and don't take God seriously enough step 3 remember some extraordinarily good people were also criticized some extraordinarily good people are also criticized the best example is Jesus himself has anyone ever been the recipient of more unjust criticism than Jesus let me answer that, no. According to Matthew 11, verse 19, Jesus was accused of being both a glutton and a winebibber. A winebibber is a drunkard. Those were slanderous accusations as Jesus was neither a glutton or a drunkard. In Mark 2, verse 16, Jesus was also criticized for his, quote, sinful associations. And according to John 8, verse 48, Jesus was called a Samaritan. And at that time, to call a non-Samaritan, meaning a Jewish person, a Samaritan was considered a serious, offensive, racial slur. But on top of that, Jesus was even accused of being demon-possessed. Imagine that. Question. In human form, Jesus Christ was absolute perfection. And if He the perfect one, the ultimate innocent one, was the victim of unjust and unfair criticism, then who are we to be immune to the same? To be criticized unjustly means we're in some pretty good company. Step four. If other people have the same opinion, then we should consider the criticism. If other people, meaning people other than the critic, have the same opinion the critic does, then we should consider the criticism. If the criticism brought against us is not an isolated opinion, if there are other respectable people, in addition to the critic, who share that same perspective, then we should take a hard look at what is being said. Playwright George Bernard Shaw uh, was approached by an extremely vocal critic after one of his theatrical productions had just opened. I still remember my brother because after opening... Uh, nights and operas and everything the papers would have all the the opera critics about the opening night and everything I asked him about that he said I don't read them he said they're just frustrated want to be singers is what they are and uh, I still remember one I can't remember what city it was one of the vocals said that my brother was just too loud and uh, (laughs) that's crazy anyway um, so he was approached by an extremely vocal critic after one of his productions had just opened. And this outspoken critic said, Mr. Shaw, I was there last night. That play was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. George Bernard Shaw said, Actually, I agree with you. I do. I agree. But what are, what are we two among so many Sometimes numbers do matter. I am not saying the majority is always right. We all understand how often the majority is wrong. Often. But sometimes numbers do matter. If one person calls you a clown, ignore him. If two people call you a clown, check yourself for a red nose. If three people call you a clown, you might consider joining a circus. If there are other respectable people who share the same opinion, then consider the criticism. Step five. Wait for time to prove our critics wrong. Wait for time to prove our critics wrong. Most people who know me know I am a huge fan of former President Abraham Lincoln. Um, I've said before, if you've ever been to Springfield, Missouri, me, Springfield, Illinois, you need to visit the Lincoln Presidential Library, one of the most amazing museums I have ever attended. I've been there once. I intend to go back this fall. Um, you, you should go. Really, put that on your bucket list. Um, no one, literally no one. And I remember this because during the tour of that library, you walked into this room, several rooms together, and from floor to ceiling are all these you know under glass all of these magazine covers and newspaper articles with these horrifically embarrassing characters cartoons of Lincoln and these horrific things said about him names he was called and, and characteristics that were not human and it, it was unbelievable I've never seen so much hate I mean th- these people just couldn't stand Lincoln No one during his administration was criticized more than he was. Listen to this statement. The cheek, the cheek of every American must tingle with shame as he reads the silly, flat, and dishwatery utterances of a man who has been pointed out to intelligent foreigners as the president of the United States now please don't misunderstand that is not a commentary from the media on a recent speech from our president Joe Biden it's not that's not it. that's not what that is now I know I know it sounds like it could be but actually that'd be a step up for him but anyway um, no that's from the Chicago Times just one day after Lincoln's famous address at Gettysburg And that was an evaluation of that speech. But people time, time in and of itself have proved that Chicago Tribune critique was wrong. The battle at Gettysburg, July 1, 2, and 3, 1863 was devastating. The battlefield contained the dead bodies of more than 7,500 soldiers and thousands of horses. Those casualties were from the Union's Army of the Potomac and the Confederate Army from Northern Virginia. The stench of rotting bodies actually made the Gettysburg townspeople ill in the days after the battle, so it became a high priority to have the dead buried in a dignified manner. Seventeen acres were purchased to serve as a cemetery to honor those that had died in that gruesome Gettysburg battle. The great orator, Edward Everett, was invito- invited to speak at the formal dedication of that cemetery. Everett had an impressive listing of credentials. Listen to his resume. He had been president of Harvard University. He had been US Secretary of State. He had been a US Senator. He had been a US Representative and he had been the governor of Massachusetts. That's a resume. He was considered to be at that time this nation's greatest public speaker. So he was invited to bring the primary address at that ceremony it was only historians have said it was only as an afterthought that the event committee invited the president to share quote a few appropriate remarks Mr. Lincoln's role at that ceremony was to be second to the speech from Mr. Everett it was similar to the modern tradition of inviting a notable public figure to do a ribbon cutting at a grand opening ceremony for something. On November 19, 1863, there were between 15,000 and 20,000 people that attended that ceremony, including six sitting governors. That's just a small, small portion of that crowd. The next picture is, gentlemen, on the platform. It's so crowded. But if you'll look at the bottom left-hand corner of the picture, you'll see Lincoln identified He's looking down. I'm assuming maybe looking at his notes, but he's down there in the left-hand corner. That's the president. It was thought that the actual Gettysburg Address was not President Lincoln's brief comments, but Mr. Everett's two-hour-plus-long speech. That speech consisted of 13,607 words. You say, how long is that? This morning's message consists of about 4,900 words. The man spoke nonstop for more than two hours. Everett spoke first, and then there was a hymn. And after that, Mr. Lincoln's dedication remarks The president, it is said, spoke in a high pitched voice using his southern accent for about two minutes. He summarized the war in a total of 10 sentences and 272 words in a call to rededicate this nation to the war effort and to the ideal that no soldier at Gettysburg had died in vain. I dare bet there's not a single person in this room that can remember even one word from Edward Everett's oration. Pretty safe bet. But most all of us Remember these beginning words from Lincoln. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Remember that? And then we can never forget the concluding phrase that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people by the people for the people shall not perish from the earth i'm sorry i don't even think the word brilliant even begins to adequately describe that speech president lincoln has been vindicated because no one today attributes the gettysburg address to edward edward and in fact most people don't even know that ever even spoke at that dedication Piece of trivia because I'm a pastor, it appealed to me. A writer named Adam Gopinick in the New Yorker magazine, just after that, noted that Everett's oration was explicitly neoclassical, but Lincoln's rhetoric was instead deliberately biblical. It is argued that it is difficult to find a single obvious classical reference in any one of Lincoln's speeches. He said Lincoln had mastered the sound of the King James Bible so completely that he could recast abstract issues of constitutional law in actual biblical terms. He could make the proposition that Texas and New Hampshire should be forever bound by a single post office sound like something right out of Genesis. That's amazing. I hope and I trust that I will meet Mr. Lincoln in heaven. If unfair criticism is brought against us, and irresponsible people are critical of us in a destructive sense, then just wait. Just wait. Because we're going to be vindicated. It's only a matter of time. Someone said, but how much time? Probably only God knows how much time. We might have to wait until heaven at the bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, where we are rewarded for our efforts here. But if we are the object of unjust, unfair, unreasonable criticism, then at some point... In time, we're going to be vindicated. So just wait. Step six, the final step. This step comes in two parts. An attitude part and then an action part. Attitude and action. Part one is to watch our own attitude toward the person who is critical of us. Watch your attitude about that person that is critical of us, meaning critical in a destructive, non-helpful sense understand that a bad attitude about the person that is wrongly critical of us is sometimes worse than the actual criticism itself and someone's bad attitude if we are careful can result in bitterness and people bitterness can be fatal so watch our attitude remember we are responsible to act and God holds responsible for our reactions so, even if we're the innocent person, victim in this criticism, we should still be careful about our attitude. I have people today, right now, if you were to approach them, mention my name, it would not be good what you would hear. I still remember someone who was a part of this church, left this church. She met somebody from this church, and she said, Larry Webb is the most arrogant pastor I've ever met. That's what she said. I go, wow, I hadn't heard that one. I'm going to have to add it to my list. Uh, but you know what I did? I'm serious. I sat down and I thought, wow, maybe I do have arrogance. Maybe I am proud. Maybe I am. You could, I, I, and I asked a number of people. I, I asked a number of people. Is that true about me? Is that really true? I want to know. But I can't I can't think ill of that person. I can't do it. God won't bless that. And he'll just sit inside and steam and, and uh, become bitter. Part two is the action part. Refuse to retaliate refuse to retaliate 1st Peter 2 I want us to notice 1st Peter 2 starting at verse 21 for to this you were called now notice carefully because Christ also suffered for us okay Christ also suffered for us why? one reason leaving us an example that you should follow his steps so we are to be like Christ Christ as it relates to personal suffering, meaning the recipient of unfair, unjust criticism? Yes. Verse 22, Who? Christ. Committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Verse 23, Who? Christ. When he was reviled. To revile means to use contemptuous and abusive language against someone. But notice when Jesus was reviled or criticized, notice the verse reads, He did not revile in, turn, in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, meaning He didn't threaten vengeance or retaliation, but committed Himself to Him, God, who judges righteously. Do you understand? Jesus didn't snap it, Someone, one of his critics, because they offered some criticism that was unfair, he didn't snap back in kind. He didn't do that. He didn't retaliate. No. He left the criticism up to God, knowing that in the end, God would vindicate him. The principle is we don't fight fire with fire, but we fight fire with water. And that means we don't fight criticism with more criticism. John Maxwell says that every person approaches a conflict, and he uses the analogy of a fire. The conflict is a fire, and we have in our hands two buckets, a five-gallon bucket of gasoline and a five-gallon bucket of water, and he said you approach that conflict or potential conflict with those two buckets, which bucket are you going to pour on that potential fire? And if you fight criticism with more criticism, all you're doing is pouring gasoline, fuel, onto the fire. People, that's counterproductive. Don't do it. I know that some big name people do it. It's wrong. That's not what Jesus did. Don't fight criticism with more criticism. Fight criticism with kindness. An example of that, Robert E. Lee was a skilled technician and a great general. It is most unfortunate, though, he fought for the wrong side and we should all be grateful the southern states didn't win that war but it has been said after hearing General Robert E. Lee speak to Confederate President Davis in the highest possible terms about another officer a man who was standing there was astonished shocked at what he had just heard and he said, General Lee don't you know that the man of whom you just spoke so highly of to the president, that man is one of your bitterest enemies, and he misses no opportunity to malign you. And Lee replied, yes, I am aware of that. But the president asked for my opinion of him. He did not ask for his opinion of me. Don't retaliate. Don't fight back. And be careful about the attitude you have toward your critic. In closing, I want us to read verse 18. Because verse 18 describes Paul's attitude and subsequent actions toward his critics. Remember in verse 15 and subsequent verses, he defined two groups. The critical detractors that preached Christ From all the wrong motives, and then his friends and supporters that preach Christ from all the right reasons. Verse 18. What then? This is the only question asked in the entire book of Philippians. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, that's a reference to both those categories pretense, group one, truth, group two. Christ is preached. And in this, meaning in that Christ is preached, I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Paul summed up his feelings toward his critics in verse 18. And he said, what mattered to him most was that Christ was preached. The gospel. The background on the PowerPoint slides have read, keep the main thing, the main thing and from beginning to end the main thing people is the gospel preaching Christ at the beginning of this message we said the second essential for a joyful existence is to focus on what really matters but how often do we focus on things that don't matter that much how often do we major on minors I'm guilty of such how often are we irritated and upset at stuff that is of no consequence and has no real lasting value how often are marriage arguments about stuff that doesn't matter that much. Gentlemen does it matter that much in the big scheme if the meal your wife prepared is not something that you are into at the moment? I mean she went to the effort to prepare it and if you're not hungry for that and you don't want that then is it that big a deal? Ladies, is it that important? If your husband's dirty socks don't make it into the clothes hamper 100% of the time? Is it that big a deal? Does it matter that much? Say no it doesn't. Just say no. (laughs) (laughs) A woman called her husband at the office. She said... uh, she said honey the car won't start he responded okay do you have any idea what the problem is she said yes I think it's flooded he said that's funny you think it's flooded what makes you think the car is flooded she said because it's in the swimming pool that's That's borderline big stuff right there okay but other than the big stuff The question is, are most domestic difficulties worth losing our marriage joyfulness over? I don't think so. The older I get, the more convinced I am, and I have to catch myself, the more convinced I am that only a few things are worth going to the mat for. As mates in marriage and as parents, we need to focus on things that actually matter. The fact we love one another matters. The fact we have responsibilities matter. The fact we made a commitment to one another and to God matters. And as Christians, one of the things that should really matter to us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word gospel, the actual word, means good news. So the Christian gospel is an announcement, a fantastic announcement, that Jesus died for our sins, he was buried in a grave, and he was resurrected from the dead, and if we receive Jesus through faith, then we can have salvation and all the benefits of that decision. That is the message of the Christian gospel, and people, that matters most. So Paul sat in this house. He's chained to praetorian guards. Christians are outside preaching the gospel after being encouraged hearing about him witnessing on the inside. And some of them had a wrong motive in doing that. Some of them were envious and critical of Paul. Some of them put him down all the time. And then others used his imprisonment in order to advance themselves and promote themselves. But then others that preached the gospel were sincere and cared about Paul and used Paul as an inspiration to urge them to continue to preach but understand none of that mattered to Paul some of them were on his side and some of them tried to sabotage him But Paul wasn't concerned about that opposition because he wasn't going to permit some critics to steal his joyfulness. He was just rejoicing in that whichever group it was, the gospel was still being preached. If someone is preaching the gospel, the pure, unadulterated, undiluted gospel of Jesus Christ, then people, it doesn't matter who he is, we should be for him if the gospel someone is preaching is aberrant and distorted a false gospel then we should be against him and we should expose him if we get the chance to do that but we should be for anyone who was preaching the legitimate gospel if someone is preaching the gospel and if his church has a different denominational name and his form of worship is different if it is more liturgical if he wears a robe to the pulpit or if his church has huge stained-glass windows if it has a large pipe organ, and if his choir sings sevenfold amens. Or the other extreme, if the congregants are more emotional and do a Jericho march around the sanctuary. That's not what really matters, people. What matters is the gospel is being preached. That matters, and we should rejoice at that. If Valley Christian Fellowship preaches the gospel, then we should rejoice. If High Sierra Fellowship preaches the gospel, then we should rejoice. If Grace Community Church near the Minden Airport preaches the gospel, then we should rejoice. If Calvary Chapel Carson Valley on Dresslerville preaches the gospel, then we should rejoice. And for the record, all of those churches preach the gospel. And there are other congregations throughout this region that preach the gospel, no matter who it is and no matter what name is on the sign out front it doesn't matter if that congregation preaches the gospel then we should rejoice there might be some definite areas of theological debate and we might have to agree to disagree on some non-essential doctrine but if we are preaching the same gospel of Jesus Christ then we should rejoice because according to Paul, that is what really matters. Paul said it didn't matter to him if people were critical of him because those same critics were still preaching the gospel. And he rejoiced in that. Not all critics preach the gospel. Some of them don't. But if a critic of ours is preaching the gospel, then we should rejoice. The two greatest earlier New England evangelists among the 13 colonies were John Wesley founder of Methodism, I might add, and George Whitfield. In fact, those men were more recognizable among the colonists than even Billy Graham was in the 20th century. Both men disagreed on certain doctrinal matters. For those of you that are theologically informed about some of these matters, uh, John Wesley was a theological Arminian, and George Whitfield was a strong Calvinist. Now, Arminianism and Calvinism represent both of them as soteriological systems, systems of salvation, represent historic Christianity. But at the same time, those are two diametrically opposed theological systems. I personally don't identify with either one of them, closer to Calvinism than the other, but still, these are opposites. So those two men disagreed on some serious theological issues. But both of them preached the gospel and were effective, extremely successful as evangelists. Preached to hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. And under that preaching, multitudes came to Jesus Christ. Did you know that Benjamin Franklin was very close to George Whitfield? He loved to hear him preach, but every time he went to hear him preach, he emptied his pockets of any money. Because he knew there would be an appeal for an offering, and he didn't want to have anything to give. Being he knew that George Whitfield was very persuasive, and if he didn't have anything to give, he couldn't do anything. Sneaky. It is reported that once someone asked John Wesley if he expected to see George Whitfield in heaven. He said, uh, "Mr. Wesley, do you expect to see Mr. Whitfield in heaven?" That famous evangelist replied, "No." No, I do not expect to see him there. And this person was shocked. Stepped back and said, "Ah, I, I can't believe that. Then do you not think Whitfield is a converted man? Evangelist Wesley responded, Oh, yes, 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 yes. There is no question but that Mr. Whitfield is a converted man. But I do not expect to see him in heaven because he will be so close to the throne of God and I will be so far away that I will not be able to see him. John Wesley wasn't concerned that George Whitfield was more reformed and Calvinistic in his theology. It didn't matter to him. His concern was the gospel. And he only cared that George Whitfield was also preaching the same gospel of Jesus Christ. Because men and women, that's all that matters. Let's bow our heads. Nothing matters more than the gospel because the gospel is the means that God uses to bring people to himself. And my heart today is for anyone in this room who has never received that gospel, that message, has never accepted Jesus for themselves, have never made that decision of all decisions. And my prayer this morning would be if it is you, if you're not certain of your salvation, if you aren't certain your sins are forgiven, if you aren't certain that you have Jesus in a relational sense, both now and forever, if you aren't certain, I beg you, I beg you, come to me after the service. Say, Pastor, can we talk? Can we set up an appointment? And I would be thrilled to meet with you soon and share with you how you can have Christ, you can receive that gospel and be saved, and I please I beg you, please do that, Father in heaven you've heard what we've said and it is true there's nothing that matters more than the gospel thank you for the example Paul set Paul wasn't concerned about himself, he was only concerned about the perpetuity the perpetuation of the gospel, that's all he cared about And if there were those out there preaching it for the wrong reasons because they wanted to add, you know, (laughs) onto his already big burden in prison, it didn't matter to him. All that mattered to him was that the gospel was going out. That's what he cared about because he cared about people. He wanted people to come to faith in Christ. And God, I pray that you would help us do the very, very same thing. We all have people that we know and love that don't know Jesus. God, help us to remember Our job is to bring Jesus to them and trust you for the results, but help us to preach the gospel and share Jesus. Thank you for what we've learned. I pray that it won't just stay in this room, but we'll take it home in our hearts and our minds and let it make a difference in each of us. And I thank you and I praise you. In the mighty name of your son, Jesus, amen. Amen.